You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. Well, I've heard it three times, three different jobs in three different states. And the words are amplified when you're a father and a husband. I'm sorry, but we're going to have to let you go. If you were to put a stethoscope on my heart in the moments that followed, you'd hear this flurry of emotions bouncing around. But the loudest one and the longest one that outlasts the rest is the feeling of failure. I failed. I tried my best. I gave my best. And I failed. So how do we respond when we fail? And I'm not talking about the little mess-ups I'm not talking about small defeats or accidents. I'm not even really talking about some catastrophic moral failure. I'm talking about when we give our best, when we try our best, and when we fail. Failure at the business that you started, but that you just couldn't make a go of. Failure as a parent, when despite your very best efforts, you're child grows up distant or disinterested in the life and the love of Jesus. Failure as a spouse when your marriage comes crashing down. Failure as a best friend when a long-time friendship dissolves into nothing. Failure to be able to start your own family when you try everything you know to try. Failure to make an important career move that you find yourself just stuck in and you can't get out of. Or maybe it's failure to snag that college scholarship that you just felt destined for that would have secured your future. How do we respond to real failure? Well, as we turn to God's Word today, I want to say right up front that I am not here as the expert who has successfully navigated failure. If anything, I've successfully failed So I'm here as one who has taken three very long laps around the track of failure and who's in need of good news, just like you. In the aftermath of dealing with some of my own failure, today's text has been very helpful in several ways, in three ways in particular. It's been kind of a barometer for me to to do a, a heart check to see how I'm doing. It's also served as a prayer that I attempt to just moan out at God at times. But mostly it's been a a source of hope and a song that I long to sing with Jesus and to Jesus. And before we turn there today, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, you may be thinking, dude, I, I can't believe it. This is so typical. This is the... This is religion. Religion is the crutch for those who are weak and can't get over their own failure. And I would just say to you, here's an intriguing little secret about failure and religion in the South. And here's the secret. Nothing robs the religious of their religion faster than failure. Failure exposes religion not as a crutch for the weak, but as a club that beats them down. And we'll see that as we move through this message this morning. If you have your Bible, uh, you can turn to Psalm 84. 
Psalm 84, right in the middle of your Old Testament. We'll also have it up here on the screen. We'll read through this quickly and uh, then look at these verses and, and camp out towards the end. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. My King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Well, as we dive in this morning, we're thinking about failure. You may ask yourself, well, why, why this psalm as the antidote for failure. In fact, this seems a bit chipper, a bit Sunday school. If we're talking about our response to, to real failure, I mean, are we really supposed to be able to respond like the psalmist? And on top of that, aren't the psalms filled with laments? Why not turn there? And I would say we certainly could. And we'd find a number of laments that would be sufficient to carry the struggles of our hearts on the wings of those words and into God's presence. But when we look at this particular psalm and really at, at, at the psalms as a whole, what we see is a decided shift takes place as we move from the first psalm to the last psalm. Praise overtakes lament. Victory overtakes failure. So one of the things we need, certainly not the only thing, but one of the things we need when we're talking about real failure is victory where there's failure. And that, by the way, that movement is the dance of the gospel. It moves from our failure to God's victory. But in relation to this particular psalm, I think it helps us with something that often follows failure. You see, when we fail, like real failure, uh, that failure tempts us to believe that God has failed us. And when we doubt God's goodness then we begin to pursue alternatives on our quest for some sort of joy or satisfaction that might ease the pain of that failure. So let's look closer at this psalm and see how it can help us deal with failure. In these first four verses, we see that God's presence corrects the self-focus of our failure. Let's look at those first couple of verses together. The psalmist says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. So the psalmist begins actually with God's 
beauty and satisfaction, the satisfaction of his presence. And this, this particular song, this would be sung by uh, the Israelites as they made their journey from their home on the way to Jerusalem to worship God. So you're getting kind of an insight. This is their Sunday morning car ride on the way to worship. And in contrast to the way this psalm starts, failure actually causes the lens of our life to focus on ourselves. And that's why this psalm is so helpful, because immediately we're called to focus the lens of our life on the living God and not on ourselves and our failures. So actually Sunday morning is in part a weekly call to set our lens on the supreme enjoyment of God. In the next couple of verses, look at verse 3 and 4. The psalmist goes on to say, Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in the house, ever singing your praise. Now, it, it may seem a little odd for him to shift to talking about a couple of birds, right? Um, but the psalmist actually uses this poetic picture uh, of these humblest of, of creatures. It's just a couple of birds. And what the psalmist says is the, these lowly creatures find a welcome home in God's presence. And in contrast, see what failure does, it is, it is, I know for sure, it brings you face to face with the reality of your own inadequacy and how unimpressive we are. But the good news of the psalm is that if there's room for a sparrow, there's room for those who failed. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning I've had the distinct honor of not once, not twice, but thrice being let go from a job. Uh, you'd think after several laps in the pool that I'd be a pretty strong swimmer, um, and that's, that's really not the case. Now, the first two layoffs were layoffs from uh, two different startup companies, but the third layoff, the most recent one, uh, was probably the most jolting. I had spent 10 years as a full-time paid pastor. My responsibilities and impact over that time had expanded. There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears poured into that over 10 years, but all of that, all of it, felt washed away in a single moment when the words came, hey, we're, we're not going to be able to keep paying you anymore. You see, real failure can feel like you've been stripped and left for dead. Literally one week prior to that, I would have people calling me. They'd be asking me for advice. They'd be looking for coaching help or leadership questions or help with their missional community or their church plan, or there'd be an invitation to speak or preach. And one week later, dead silence. I remember looking at my wife and saying, I'm no different than I was a week ago. The only thing that changed is I don't have a title anymore. Fast forward 16 months after that, and uh, I'm headed to this little missional conference. It was a small conference. It would have been the kind of conference that I actually would have helped give leadership to, just not so in the distant past. And many of the guys there were full-time, vocational, paid pastors, and invariably at any sort of break, uh, you'd interact with some of them, and they would say, so, you know, how are you, who are you, where are you from, what do you do? And to me, at least in my ears, my answer always sounded like this, well, I'm a failure. 
Uh, I got let go of my pastor gig not too long ago, not because of some moral epic failure, but just because at the end of the day, I wasn't good enough. How about you, bud? What do you do? (laughs) Instead of introducing myself as Robbie Fowler, I felt like saying, hi, I'm Robbie Failure. Nice to meet you. Because failure is a very humbling reminder of our inadequacy and just how unimpressive we are. But this psalm celebrates a different truth. It's the truth that in God's presence, the weak and the unimpressive find a welcomed home. We can let go of how unimpressive we are, and the psalmist calls us instead to focus our hearts on how impressive God is. In the next couple of verses, we see that the enjoyment of God's presence imparts strength for our journey through failure. Glance there at verse 9 with me. The psalmist says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. The psalmist says here that there's strength for the journey. And that strength comes not from ourselves, but it actually comes from God. Now, again, with this particular psalm, the Israelites would have been traveling sometimes long distances to head to Jerusalem. But the psalmist reminds them that even amidst the desolate, dry places and the lonely valleys, that God's presence would be there. And his presence would actually impart refreshment and replenishment. And when you and I walk through the dry, lonely valley of failure, God's presence is not only enough to sustain us, but the psalmist would make the bold claim that he is enough to quench us. The valley doesn't disappear, but a heart built with highways, expressways, the autobahn to God's presence can be strengthened and find joy through the valley of failure. Now, here's where I want us to linger for a few moments together. So to to recap just real quick, as we look through the first two parts of the psalm, we've seen that God's presence, particularly experienced together in worship, pulls our focus off of our failure and onto his beauty. It grants us strength and refreshment during our journey, even our journey out of failure. But here's where the good news gets even better. In these last few verses, we see that God's presence is more satisfying than any other alternatives our failure may tempt us with. Look at verse 10 with me. You may have heard this verse before. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, when when we fail, when our marriage fails, when our work fails, when our dreams come crashing down, when our family fails, our dating relationship, our ministry, our missional community, that failure, what it can do is it creates these little pop-up tents. And these are pop-up tents for potential wickedness. They're kind of like the ones mentioned there at the end of verse 10. These are places that we're tempted to stop off for satisfaction. 
And here are the few of the tents of wickedness that can sound more satisfying, particularly after failure, than hanging out in God's presence. See, failure makes us uh, defensive, kind of hypersensitive. And failure unleashes the comparison monster that's inside of all of us. We're tempted to think that if somehow we can just quickly defend ourselves and, and we, could, we can remind ourselves and we can remind others that we're not really failures, that we can prevent the ship from sinking, that we can stop the leaks, that somehow we can prevent any further damage, any more property loss. That's because we think we might be able to. If we do that, maybe we'll be able to retain some of the satisfaction we had before we failed. We think we'll find joy and satisfaction in the tent of complaining and comparing more than we will in the presence of God. Failure can also make us look for joy in the harm of others. See, we can run to this tent believing that we can grab at least some measure of small satisfaction at the dissatisfaction of others. We say, well, maybe at least I'll draw some sense of comfort from their misery. If you kind of pop your head into any of these campgrounds along the way that the psalmist is talking about, here's the kind of things you might hear from the husband that has failed at being able to start his own family with his wife. You, you might hear these stupid baby on board bumper stickers. Yeah, congrats on creating another human being. Real groundbreaking work, buddy. By all means, take an extra lane of the highway for you and your baby. Take a double car length of space at every intersection. I hope some stupid teenager comes and smashes in in the back of them and knocks their whole bumper off with that stupid bumper sticker along with it. You hear things like this if a job or a relationship has brought failure. Yeah, we'll see how they do after I'm gone. Like, who's going to take care of X, Y, Z? Failure also robs us of our resume. And in response, we can take a dive into the tent of trying to craft an alternative version of the story that steers clear of our failure, believing that somehow there's more joy in protecting our reputation than there is in revealing our failure. I uh, recently went to a tennis tournament. Two of my kiddos play tennis. It was just he and I there at the tennis tournament because it was uh, out of town. And he got paired up to play with another um, partner from another state for doubles. And so as we watched some of these double matches, I got to know the parents of his uh, doubles partner. And a few matches in, the mom and I are just kind of casually chatting back and forth. Uh, it's the usual kind of innocent small talk stuff. She says, so, you know, I said, how long have you lived in Shreveport? And she answers, and she, oh, how about you? How long have you lived in, uh, in, in Jonesboro? So I answered, I told her, you know, originally from Texas, and we spent a couple years in Southern California, actually uh, before moving to Jonesboro, then moved to Jonesboro. And uh, she served up the uh, dreaded question, oh, really, Southern California to Arkansas? What brought about that move? Uh, I, I literally remember I'm, I'm just kind of awkward pause. At this moment, I could say any number of things, right? She'd be none the wiser. Or I could set my own trap and I could tell her, 
that uh, I moved there so I could be a pastor and work at a church. See, the problem is just a few moments before, I, I, I had already told her that I had my own branding and design business. And in that moment, honestly, the Spirit brought this psalm to mind. And uh, I kind of sheepishly said, um, I was a pastor at a church there for, for 10 years. That's why we moved there. Uh, she, she turned her eyes from watching her son, watching the match, and she fixed them on me. And she said, oh, okay. I've never heard of someone who stopped being a pastor before. That's interesting. The aroma of failure immediately filled the air like an unwelcome stench of a nearby dumpster on a hot, windy day. Now, if you hear this morning and you say, you know what, uh, none of those tents sounds particularly attractive to me. In fact, I'm appalled that you would even mention them as potential rivals for God's glory. Then I would say to you, I'm not talking to you because you have not tasted the kind of failure I'm talking about. There's one more campsite that our failure would tempt us with. See, when failure hits, even if the primary cause of that failure is outside of yourself or outside of myself, even, even it's, if that failure is caused primarily by a set of unfortunate circumstances, or maybe it's caused by some terrible timing or a tanking economy or a spouse that's just gone berserk or a rebellious teenager that refuses to listen or maybe just bad genetics, we can still almost always connect that failure and at least our response to it, back to some kind of idol that we look to for our joy. And two of the most common that we'll find in one of these tents of wickedness that failure exposes is uh, one is our desire for approval from others, and the other is our desperation to have influence over others. In my case, my most recent failure has exposed a lovely little tent that I had set up around the idol of influence. And here's how you can kind of discern between the two real quick. If you struggle with looking for joy and the approval of others, you will base what you do or what you say on this question. Will this cause them to like me? Will doing this or saying this, will it, will it cause them to like me? You will do something or not do something, say something or not say something, based on whether or not it will help someone like you. And when this kind of person fails, if that's you this morning, then you're left with no answer to the question, I've, I've failed now, why would anyone like me? If you struggle with seeking joy in your influence over others like I do, then you base what you do or say off this question. It's not, will this cause them to like me? It's, will, will this cause them to listen to me? And so your behavior, my behavior, becomes guided by our, our desire to see others seek, seek us out for influence. And when this kind of person fails, he or she is left with no answer to the question, I failed. Now, who would listen to me? In the aftermath of being let go from full-time paid vocational ministry, I quickly realized that I had often preferred a thousand days of influence over a moment 
at the doorstep of the Lord's courts. The Holy Spirit has used this psalm and this next verse in particular, though, to bring good news to me in my failure. Look at the next verse, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The psalmist here uses a metaphor for the Lord as a sun to, to, to help us capture how God, like the sun, is life-giving. Just as the sun is necessary for light and for life, so is the Lord, the psalmist says. And then he goes on to extend the metaphor to say he's like a shield. And a shield would be used for protection, but it would also be a sign of prestige and honor as it would belong to an officer. And so the life and protection found in God's presence, uh, it would be a very welcomed reward for those, again, that originally heard this psalm that would be traveling towards Jerusalem on their pilgrimage to worship. Along the way, they would be singing and rehearsing this good news. So the psalmist says, The reason the Lord is a superior joy to the joy you might find in some of those other tents of wickedness is because the Lord's presence itself is life-giving and prestige-building. You see, failure cuts deep because it robs us oftentimes of the source that we look to for our life and for our honor and for our prestige. If your success at work or the number of years of marriage you've been able to string together or your missional community involvement or your ministry or your family, if success there is what you depend on for life and honor, then failure in any of those areas will be devastating. And that's, that's why religion is a terrible savior for failure. Religion says what gives you life, what earns you honor, is your ability to be successful at keeping the rules. Religion says your way back to the top after you fail is found in your ability to not mess it up again. Religion is a club that beats you down after you fail. But here the gospel says that in the Lord's presence, in his presence, the psalmist says, we receive life and honor. He is the source of life and prestige. I'm not the source of my own honor. I'm not the source of my own prestige or influence or likability. My life and my honor are not based on my strength or my resume or my job title, or even my character. They're based on His. Look at the next part of that same verse. The psalmist says, Not only for the Lord God is the sun and shield, the Lord bestows favor and honor. Now, the, the word that's translated there, favor, is it's actually a Hebrew word that gets translated for favor or for mercy or for grace. This is undeserved. This is not earned. It's not a favor that you snatch by your success. It's not a favor that failure can ever steal away from you. It's favor and grace and mercy and acceptance that is bestowed upon you as a gift by the Lord. This is the gospel. 
Now, to be perfectly fair, uh, religion will offer you the same favor and honor. In fact, there's actually a line a mile long outside that tent. And the problem is it's very much like the Hotel California. You can always check in, but you can never check out. And that is because the onus is on you to maintain a level of performance that keeps you favorable and honorable. I couldn't keep it up. In the next line of the psalm, the psalmist says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The psalmist says that the Lord is our life, he's our prestige, that he bestows grace and honor. He gives it away, and here's the great news. He is famous for his generosity. He gives it away lavishly. He gives it away till it hurts. So why is it that I'm running around trying to grab or snatch or earn or protect it? Uh, I have a buddy, when we lived back in Southern California, we had season passes to Disneyland, and we'd go to Disneyland together all the time. And every time we went to Disneyland together, we'd always finish the day uh, the exact same way. We'd finish it off by heading to the Grand Gibson ice cream shop, and we'd get a big Sunday. And after we'd place our order, he would always linger uh, up there near the counter, and as the worker was back there making the Sunday, when it came time to add the chocolate sauce, my buddy would get the worker's attention every time, and he would always say, hey, buddy, put it on there till it hurts. <laughs> the Father loves to dish out life-giving grace and honor to those who have failed to find honor in themselves. That's why a moment with him is better than a thousand other days of any other success that you or I could ever dream up. That's why the psalm good is such good news for those of us who have failed. It's because influence and approval, those are things that are his to dish out. And he does it till it hurts. There's one more piece here. The last line says that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. This enjoyment of God's life-giving, gracious, generous presence, it's, it's not offered for those who want to camp out in the tents of wickedness. It's for those who want God's presence, who want to be in his courts. It's offered to those who walk uprightly, the psalmist says. Now, this, does not, this is not a word that means innocence. It's not, um, it's not perfection. But it does refer to those who disclaim the wickedness found there at the end of verse 10. In God's grace, he bestows honor and influence. Actually, the psalmist says, in accordance with our character. He does not fill our cup up with honor beyond what our character can hold. That's because if he did, that would harm us. That would harm others. And that would not be a reflection of his character. You see, because his influence and his honor are perfectly in line with his character. The psalmist finishes with the good news, O Lord of hosts, blessed or happy are those who trust in you. Well, as we finish up, I want to be very, very transparent because I don't even want to unintentionally pull the wool over your eyes uh, this is what I don't want you to hear. I don't want you to hear, 
Uh, hi, I'm Robbie. I've had a really rough dosage of failure in my life. Uh, what I did was my wife and I gathered around this psalm. We read it the next day. We found our enjoyment in God's presence. We handed it like champs. So you, shoot, you too should also be able to take failure, run to this psalm, and just laugh in the face of failure. That's not what I'm here to say. Quite the contrary. We had very real fights. I'm talking about cuss out you, them, God, everybody kind of fights. Grown-up fights, right? We've had, we still have disappointments, disillusionments. We have fear, we have anger, you name it. We, we've had it, we have it, we struggle with it. Failure hurts. And so we've had to wrestle with and we still wrestle with whether or not being with God is as wonderful as the psalmist says it is. So I'm not here to stand up and tell you that the ultimate solution to your failure is for you to fool yourself or try to convince yourself that the Lord is just so wonderful that a brief time in His presence is better than a thousand days anywhere else. I think the, the real question, if we're honest this morning, is what do you and I do when the pain of our failure hurts so bad that it feels like it outweighs the goodness of God? And when we're left without the strength of affections in our hearts to sing this psalm, what do we do? What happens when the sting of failure makes it feel like one day in his courts is not better than a thousand elsewhere? Well, you turn to Jesus. Because he will gladly sing this for you, and he will sing this with you. In Hebrews chapter 2, I think we have that verse, the writer of Hebrews says this about Jesus. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, sing, saying I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise." Jesus, our brother and our substitute, perfectly sings this song, the song of Psalm 84 on our behalf. Even when my own failure or your own failure clouds your affections for God. The writer of Hebrew reminds us that Jesus knows failure. The word there when it says that Jesus tasted death, that, that word for taste does not mean that he took a little small sample. It actually means to experience something cognitively and emotionally with a focus on personal involvement. Jesus tasted failure. 
He experienced it fully. He experienced it in our place. In fact, he literally took our worst failure, our failure to trust in the beautiful, gracious God of Psalm 84, and he paid for our failure. And unlike you and me, he never stopped trusting the Father perfectly. He knows lament and he purchased victory. And he can sing this song for us and with us. The hope of the gospel is not you getting over your failure and getting it right and singing this psalm with a happy smile on your face. The hope of the gospel is that the Lord bestows grace and honor and he has done so most fully in Jesus. Jesus is the proof that the Father does not withhold his best. Jesus sings for us because the Father gave till it hurt. And the gospel story does not end with my failure or your failure, but with Jesus' resurrection and his victory. The great news is that in Jesus we have a far greater victory than any failure I could ever mount. And even when we struggle to sing the psalm, he sings it with us. He sings it for us if we will trust him. He takes our failure, we get his victory. That is why a few moments with him are far better than a thousand anywhere else. Now, I'm not normally a uh, huge NBA fan, but I got sucked in this year by a little Steph Curry action, a little Golden State Warriors drama, and I actually found myself watching the finals this year, the historical comeback of the Cleveland Cavaliers, they were down 3-1 in the championship series, fought back to win the city of Cleveland, their first championship in 52 years. Now, one scene that caught my attention that final night uh, came just moments after the Cavs' victory. It was a brief video clip, and it captured the celebration of, listen to this, this is the celebration of the LeBron James Grandmothers Fan Club. Okay, I'm going to hit you with that again. This is a celebration of the LeBron James Grandmothers Fan Club. Okay, and we're going to watch a brief 20-second video clip of this celebration that happens back in Cleveland while LeBron and company win the championship miles away in Oakland, California. Check out this brief clip. Good stuff, huh? <laughs> I'd like to uh, invite the worship team back up as, as we close. Um, that clip caught my attention because it is a wonderful picture of the gospel. King James, as LeBron James is referred to, he goes to battle. He gives everything he has to secure victory. And meanwhile, a group of grandmas back in Cleveland who cannot contribute anything to the cause, they burst forth in celebration for a king who brought them a victory that they could never attain. Their 52 years of failure is suddenly washed away by his victory on their behalf. 